0: Hey there, my friends. It is so good to see you again tonight, and welcome to Restoration Life Church's Bible Study. Tonight, we're going to finish up Romans chapter 8, and man, this is a powerful study because we go through some hard things in life, but Romans 8 talks to us about how we get through those things and how we are more than conquerors through it. So this is going to be awesome. So grab your Bible, open your heart, and you're ready to hear what God wants to say to you tonight. Amen. Well, I don't know what was going on there. I just a little, <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> uh, tonight we, I believe with the Lord's help, we are actually going to finish Romans chapter eight, uh, tonight. We're biggest chunk that we're going to have, uh, during this whole study. And we're, we're going to be talking about being like Jesus and, and how that, that really is, is not what some people think it is. And, um, And sometimes being like Jesus, people use that as an excuse to actually not be like Jesus. And so we'll talk about that. And and then we're going to talk about how how believers can overcome even in terrible situations. So let's just jump right in. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Thank you. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time tonight to go into detailed teaching about God's foreknowledge and the the election or the elect and the the pre and predestination and those sort of things tonight. We'll we'll get into some of that a little bit in in chapter nine in a little bit more detail, but. What I want to do is just give you a little a basic explanation of these terms as they're used in Scripture, uh, because there's a lot of different ideas on these things. There are those in the Christian world, and and they are they are our brothers in Christ. They are not our enemies. But they they believe that God pre-selects certain people to be adopted as children of God, and that and that other people are selected. Uh, to not be children of God, and that that elect election is unconditional. In other words, they say that uh, that means they they say we have no choice in the matter. matter. It's all God's sovereign right to choose. Well, I, I don't believe that's what Scripture teaches. So let me give you my understanding of election, foreknowledge, and predestined or predestination, and and we're going to get into some of these. I mean, we could we could spend. Uh, two whole hours, two different sessions on just these topics. But uh, I feel like maybe we'd get a little bogged down in that. So I don't want to do that. But let me just give you a basic understanding, a a short overview. First of all, election has to do with choosing. Uh, I elect you. I I elect this person. I elect this group of people. I elect this nation. So so it's about God selecting the people. And there, there are many, many scriptures in the in the Bible, that teach the doctrine of election. We're not going to take time to go through all those, but they talk about how God chooses people. And we don't have that time tonight. Maybe in another another time we'll do that. But for tonight, let's just understand that election has to do with selecting people. That's election. Then the word predestined refers to a predetermined destination. Uh, Predestination has to do with what the future, what, excuse me, what future the elect or, or the chosen people will have. So election is about who and predestination is about what? Ele, election is about the person and predestination is about the destiny of the person. So, uh, you know, in election, I'll give you an example, a way to illustrate this. In, ele, in, in using the term election, I, I might choose who goes on the trip with me. So after church tonight, uh, I'm going to go to Shake Shack, and, uh, and and I'm going to elect some people to go on that journey with me. So Chuck is coming, and Mark, you're elected to go. Uh, Gina, you're not going, so you're not of the elect. Uh, but uh, but that's the whole idea. Uh, so I've elected people, and the destination is Shake Shack. So that's the predestination of the elect that the, that the chosen people of God have a predetermined destination. Uh, and, the, and the elect are those who are chosen, and their, their destination is the future glorif- their future glorification in Christ, uh, salvation, eternity of God, all those sort of things is the predestination. I hope that makes a little bit of sense, and, I, and we're not going to go into detail. Like I said, it's, it's enough to stretch your brain, and it gets, can get bogged down a little bit. But then there's another term that's used in this passage. It's called it's foreknowledge. And that's just simply referring to the fact that God has perfect knowledge in advance of all that is to come in the future. So, he, so then he knows who will have faith in Christ for salvation and who won't. And uh, what we believe about foreknowledge is that foreknowledge is not something that is causative. In other words, just because God knows something is going to happen doesn't mean that he makes it happen or that he causes it to happen. And 1 Peter 1 2 says this it says that we are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And so I think what it's talking about here is that God knows in advance those who will choose to believe in Christ. And then the election that he makes, that what he chooses, the choice that he makes, is that those that are in Christ are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. It's not that he's. Predetermined who will be in Christ, but that those who are in Christ, it is predetermined they have a destination that they will be made like Christ. In other words, this election is choosing of a group of people, a category of people. We're going to see that, I believe, in chapter nine. However, in the middle of all that, we talk about God choosing what we believe, and this is where we're different from 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 some other from some that I mentioned earlier. We believe that there is a choice that people have to make in order to be included in that group, to be in Christ. That it's not an unconditional election that God just picks and then you really didn't have a choice in the matter. Uh, I think a great picture of this is when God chooses, when he chose Israel to be his people. Because he chose them and, and he made that choice. And he said, "You're mine." He just he simply says to them, uh, he calls them my people, whom I have chosen, and and he calls them out of Egypt. But then uh, he gives them the law of Moses, and then in that moment he asks them, "Do you accept these laws?" And in response, Israel chooses God as their God. So you you could ask, did God choose Israel, or did Israel choose God? And the answer is yes. Both. When they they were about to enter the the, uh, promised land, God through Joshua said to the nation of Israel, He said, choose you this day whom you will serve. Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. So God chooses us, but, but then we have to choose to respond to His invitation. And when we make that choice, then we become part of the elect. And now we can choose to reject that offer if we want to, Uh, but, but, but that seems crazy. And I think most people who do choose to, to reject it, uh, it's because they don't fully understand the offer that's in front of them. But I really think one phrase that I mentioned a few times that really is the key to understanding all of this is the phrase in Christ. You can read Ephesians. It talks about a lot of these things, but the phrase in Christ comes up over and over again, that if you are in Christ, then you are predestined to be, be conformed to the image of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that you're predestined to be in Christ. Uh, that's the choice that you, you have to make to respond in faith. And, and faith is not a work. Faith is faith. And Scripture makes it very clear that faith is the opposite of works. Um, and so uh, now we'll probably come back to this again a little bit later. But, but let's just look at what Paul is trying to teach in this passage, because that's just a little side note. He said, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So the point of this is that we are being conformed to to the image of Jesus. So so what's our destination? For what are we predestined? And that is to be more like Christ, that I would be more like Jesus. And I I think this happens in a couple of different ways. I'm being conformed in my nature, but I'm also being conformed in my character. And I want to talk about those two ways in which I'm being conformed. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says this. Beloved, now are we children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. And this is the part of which I want you to pay attention to. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So the, the future revelation of Christ when He returns is the time when I am transformed And I become like him, not just in character, but in nature, in the very makeup of who I am. First Corinthians 15 talks about this. It says, for this corruptible uh, will put on incorruption and this mortal will put on immortality. So my body will be changed. My body will be transformed into a new body that is fit for eternity. And it's like Jesus in some way. Uh, Philippians chapter three, verses 20 and 21 is along the same lines. It says, But our citizenship is in heaven from where also we await for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our body of humiliation so that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working of his power, even to subdue all things to himself. So I'm going to be changed. I'm actually really looking forward to this. I, I You know, the, 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 the way that scripture, that translation I read says it is so appropriate to me. It says I have this body of hum, humiliation, which, you know, Uh, that I really can identify with that some translations call it a lowly body I have a lowly body you have a lowly body but it's going to be changed into the likeness of Christ now when we talk about being becoming like Christ this is not deification You know, it's not like the Mormon teaching about if you're a good enough person and you get married in the temple and you always tithe and you always keep the commandments and you fulfill your vows, then you can become a god who has your own planet. That's this is not you uh, becoming like Christ in his deity. It's not deification; it's glorification. It's more like these. This, you know, Jesus is not saying I'm God and I'm going to make you like me, like another god. Uh, No, what happened is Jesus came. And took human form. So he's not changing us into God form. He came and took human form. He, he lived. He, he died. He rose again. And now he has a glorified human body. And you'll be, you'll be in that likeness. We'll be changed into the likeness of the glorified human body of Jesus. That's, that's the thing to which I will be conformed. We will be glorified humans, but we will be in, in the image of Christ in our nature. So So, so we are glorified and this is something that god has predestined to do in us just simply because of his kindness not because we've earned it not because we deserve it but this is what he's chosen to do so so one of the things that we see is this is something that i'm waiting on this has obviously not happened yet right anybody here have any aches and pains in your body any anybody just yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so it obviously has not happened yet right where our bodies have not been changed. This is not going on right now. This is a future thing. But I also want us to see that there is another sense in which I am predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus for which I am not waiting. And that is in character. It's in the character of who who I am. That's a transformation that's taking place right now. Uh, There's a phrase that I love. I've used it a lot. The the older I get, the more I love the phrase, but the phrase is, is a follower of Jesus. I really like that phrase. And the more I walk with him, the more it means to me. Because uh, when when I say I'm a follower of Jesus, it's, it's saying that it's more, I don't just simply believe, but it means that I'm following him, that I'm walking with him. So, so so then the question is, who's my pattern? Who's the one leading the way for me? Who's the example I'm trying to in, in, Im, imitate? And it's, it's Jesus. And I'm trying to imitate him in his teachings and in his lifestyle. So when we look at Jesus, one of the things that really stands out is that Jesus was the example of God's love. So we talk about being conformed in character. It's going to be con- con- that we're going to be conformed in love is in that in that process. This is something to which God has predestined us, and God wants us to walk in love the way Christ walked in love. Anybody here measure up to that one? Not, no? <laughs> Me neither. I don't either. Uh, we are to love each other the way Jesus loves us, and you know, some people kind of diminish this idea of love and pursuing love because, you know, some people might be coming from a camp where they they, they say, and I would, I, would, I would say this proudly, I would say I'm unashamed of the theology and the truth of the scriptures, but, but what can happen is sometimes people with that mindset can, can sometimes diminish love as though love is a word that's been hijacked by religious liberals, uh, you, know, uh, you know, that it's just this touchy-feelous stuff and it's like, oh, you just make it all about love and you forget the truth. And you can diminish love if you're not careful when you value the truth. Uh, but the Bible says that we are beloved and that we are called to be loving. In fact, that's even, there's even verses that says, beloved, let us love one another. So we are beloved of God. And so, and we're also to be loving at the same time. That's, that's the idea. That's a call that's been given to us. God loved the world. Jesus showed his love perfectly in everything he did. And and I think if I could summarize this love, it's a way to help us understand it. It's it's a concern for others above yourself. That That's love. And it's so simple. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm worried more about you than I am about me. My, my care and my thoughtfulness and my concern is for you more than me. That, that's love. And I think that's a powerful thing. I think parents really, uh, you know, when a good mom or a good dad lives that way, it's it's, it's sort of the epitome of love. We can really see it very clearly. Um, I, I heard a story about someone who called a church one time, and they, they, they talked to a pastor, and they said, I was thinking about uh, uh, going to your church and check, trying it out, checking it out, but, but I wanted to know if your church is a loving church. And the pastor said, yeah, yeah, it is. You, you should come. Come check it out. And the The caller said, "Okay, but but the thing is, I've been to churches and they weren't really loving. And I want to go to a church that's really loving, which which which, by the way, sometimes people say that. And what they mean is I want somebody who will not confront me with the issues in my life. But that's a whole different issue. But but that's not what's going on. the pastor felt like he had some discernment in the situation. And he he said to this guy, he said, did you know? that God hasn't actually called us so much to find people that are loving, but to be people that are loving. We're so concerned about finding a church that is loving when he's saying, listen, I want you to be people that are loving. And he said, the fellowship you decide to attend, the church that you put yourself in, he said, your job is not so much to be a receptacle of love, but to be one who is pouring love into others. Uh, You know, a room full of people that are trying to pour love into others is the place you want to be. Not a room full of people that are looking around to see if they're being loved, because that's a room full of leeches, and they're just waiting for someone to walk in with some fresh blood, and then that person's going to feel drained very, very quickly. Concern for others before myself should be growing in my character. This should be something I strive for, something I push myself toward to purposefully and intently love others, to to put on that loving attitude and to let that become a major part of my life to conform to the image of Christ. And, and th- this is where the concern about religious li- liberals come in. And I'll be honest, I'm not nearly as concerned about political liberals as I am about religious liberals uh, because religious liberals are people who would, deny the the actual authority of god's word and then they reinvent jesus to fit whatever image they have of themselves on facebook or or instagram but but i want to give you this one qualification in this whole idea of, of love because here's the thing jesus was not always loving in the way that we sometimes think about someone being loving it it's funny how some people will say to you, man, Jesus wouldn't do that. But if you ask that same person to describe Jesus, they seem to very often go to the same story. They seem to always go to the story of the woman caught in adultery. And, you know, and then already they're starting to quote and they're saying, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Has anybody noticed this? It's very popular. Uh, approach. It's, it's as though the story of the woman caught in adultery is the only story about Jesus Jesus that we know. You know, we don't seem to even know about Jesus driving the money changers out of the temple, you know, or, or, or calling Pharisees hypocrites or whitewashed tombs. You know, uh, we, we don't seem to know that. But, you know, the response is always, oh, but Dave, Jesus only did that to religious people. But, you know, you think about this. My thought is, that almost every person that Jesus encountered when he was on this earth was a religious person. That was the norm of their, of their culture, the norm of their society. The stuff he did, he did not, did, didn't, didn't just do it to Pharisees. But he, I mean, he said, woe to you, Chorazin and, and Bethsaida. And they weren't all just Pharisees. So what I'm saying is sometimes there were times when Jesus was not nice, like at all but he was always loving. You know, that's the balance for us. The balance for us is to know that love is not always what we would call niceness. Um, you know, uh, it's not what we would call politeness. You know, that's, that's kind of maybe even a better word for it. Niceness is, isn't even love. In fact, niceness can very easily become enablement instead of loving. Because you want to be so nice And you're so worried about hurting somebody's, you know, uh, feelings, and you're so worried about stepping on somebody's toes that you don't sometimes don't say the things that need to be said when that person is wandering and straying from the Lord. So, you know, uh, that's the one qualification because you know we we talk about Jesus being loving. We, you know, when we actually read the Bible, we see, and this is going to sound very strange to you, but Jesus did not approve of people as they were living in their lifestyle of sin. But he did love them. He did love them. If he approved of them, he wouldn't need to die for them. Right? I mean, Jesus would not just open his arms and say, and this is going to sound strange, and I'll explain what I mean. Jesus would not open his arms and say, I accept you just the way you are. That's not exactly the theology of Jesus. That's more of a theology of our making. Jesus loves you just the way you are. But he doesn't accept your sin. He doesn't accept your sin. He, He loves you the way you are. But the truth is, because he loves you so much, he made a way for you to be accepted by God. That's that's the thing. So, so love is love is one side of the coin to be conformed to the image of Christ. Love love love. Love is to be chief in our, our mind, it's to be, you know, to to be self-sacrificial, to be putting other people's needs above my own to do this every day all day long. But here's the other side on the character thing. The other side of the coin is righteousness. Righteousness to be conformed in righteousness. Righteousness keeps love pure. See, this is why it's not one or the other. It's not, well, you got to be loving or you got to be righteous. It's both because righteousness is the thing that keeps love pure and love is the thing that keeps righteousness on target. These things go together, love and righteousness. Those who diminish love, they don't get it. They don't get following Jesus. And at the same time, those who diminish righteousness don't get it either because Jesus was always righteous. Jesus was always righteous. And and following Him means walking in righteousness. I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. It says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. That's the fruit of the spirit in your life. It's goodness, righteousness, and truth. The fruit of the spirit is not about uh, uh, is not about supernatural gifting. It's about character qualities. These are the, the the supernatural giftings. Those are gifts of the spirit. But the fruit of the spirit is about character qualities: goodness and righteousness and truth. Verse ten, proving what is pleasing to the Lord. And he says, and do not have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them. And that's what Jesus did. He targeted controversial Jewish religious issues of his day. And he exposed them with righteousness and love. I mean, in one breath, he could condemn the the ungodly acts of those around him. He, He did it sometimes very strongly, didn't he? And in the next breath, he, he could say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And it just sort of defies our modern stereotype where you're either uh, approving and loving or you're righteous and condemning. My thought is maybe I can be like Jesus and be both righteous and loving. And I think, I think that's a good goal for all of us. Now, now, some people think that it is oppressive or legalistic to expose works of darkness, to, to call out the things going on in a person's life, now, not to try to, to embarrass them, but to expose the work of darkness that's going on in their life, to open their eyes, uh, to, to be the light that that says, look, you, you have to change, man. You, you can't live this way. That's not righteous. I love you too much to just let you go down this road. I, I want to I wanna help you deal with this. And there's some people think that's oppressive or they think it's legalistic and i i, I think it's funny when peop, some people use the word legalistic i'd like to hear them define the word because there's a biblical definition and that's probably very very different from what they're thinking because uh when they think it's legalism it's, it's think they think it means that you you that you actually talk about righteousness but legalism is biblically, biblically speaking is when you try to earn your salvation by doing specific things it's a a plus B equals C. Therefore, if I do this and this, then this must happen. That's, that's a legalistic way of looking at life. But, but the truth is, this is very biblical. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should know this. Jesus was holy. He was, he was sinless. God is the one who says, be holy for I am holy. God calls us to holiness and Jesus' mission involved preaching And when it involved preaching, he wasn't just going out there and saying nice things to everybody and making everybody feel good all the time, was he? You you remember when Jesus said the words, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Do you remember when Jesus, no, you don't, because Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say that. You know why he didn't say that? He didn't say that because he was too busy preaching the gospel with words. He didn't just Walk into a village and 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 just walk around and shine niceness around he he preached, he spoke to them, he preached the word to them, and what was his message? Read into the scriptures in all four gospels. The message is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand that was jesus 's message it was a It was a very confrontational message saying, "Listen, repent, you have to live holy that 's what his message was, and I want to follow jesus so I need to make that as part of my message as well. The mission has to involve preaching. The mission has to involve going into the world and telling it like it is. But you have to have love as the foundation of all of that. You have to have both. Now, now you, you will be misunderstood. That's fine. People have misunderstood Jesus. However, you got to remember some people will understand. Some people will get it. They'll hear you and they'll hear the love and the sincerity and the the truth and they might come to Christ. So so this is our destination, to be conformed to the image of His Son, to the image of Jesus. And it's it's good for us to focus on Jesus and to pursue His character in our lives. Let's let's look at verse 30 and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those uh, and those whom he justified he also glorified so here we got some of these words again predestined called justified glorified what do these words mean well to be predestined as we said means your destiny is set ahead of time by god he has this plan in place to be called that's the call to receive jesus as lord but it's also the call to live it out in life to be justified means to be declared innocent it's like the old song that says it says just as if i'd never done anything wrong uh, and, and so that 's me ju- being justified my sins are washed away i've i 've been made just or righteous by grace and and then uh these he also glorified now that 's interesting he glorified how many of you ever had the candy uh now and later anybody ever had a now and later candy you know what I'm talking about i'm i'm not i hope don 't have any to hand out or anything to you but uh, but but that 's kind of The idea here with this glorification and a lot of things in Scripture, too, but it's this now and later idea. Uh, I'm glorified now in the sense that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. He he lets me have this treasure in earthen vessels so that his his power can be seen uh, uh, and it can be seen that it is of God, not of me. Uh, I'm filled with the Spirit. I'm empowered by God for life I've been given a measure of the glory of God upon my life. So I'm glorified in a sense. But there's also a future glorification that, that's coming for us that is really fits the context of Romans chapter 8. Romans 8.18 uh, talks about the glory that will be revealed to us. When, when, and when we talk about being glorified, there is a now and later sense of being glorified. But it, what's interesting here is that in all these words, including glorified, he uses the past tense. He uses the past tense. Whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, we we need to understand this. It's true, you know, even your salvation is done, but it's not finished yet. Uh, You know, everything that you need for your salvation has already been paid for, but... My body has not, has not been saved yet. So there's more to come. Sometimes scripture uses the past tense of words to talk about the certainty and the sureness of these various things. It's a done deal, it's already done. You, you, you've, you've seen this probably already at work in, in your life. Like at work, for example, the boss you know, comes to you and says something like, all right, I need you to, to, to count this register and then clock out. And then you, you look at the boss and say, all right, uh, all right, it's done, boss. It's done. Well, you haven't done it yet. But what are you doing? You're communicating to him. You're saying, listen, you don't have to worry. You can count on me. It's going to be done. So it's so sure that we say it's done. We talk about it in past tense. That's the, uh, the implication here. God is saying, that it's a done deal, that there's nothing that can stop it from happening. Those who are justified in the way you're justified is by being in Christ. Those who are justified, those who are in Christ will be eventually fully glorified. It's a done deal. You know, listen, you can't read through the book of Romans, particularly Romans 8. You can't read through Romans 8 without feeling a sense of security in your salvation, you know, without feeling a sense of confidence Uh, That the one who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. It's it's like a done deal. So so what's the point? What What am I really getting out of verse 30? He predestined. He called. He justified. He glorified. I think there's a point there that sometimes it's really easy for us to overlook. Because I think the point is that God does it all. God does it all. He predestined. He called you, he justified, he glorifies you, done deal. It's it's like it's already done. It's all on God. It's him doing these things. Now, the reason I bring that out is because some people can get very easily confused because we see salvation as being by faith. But then after we get saved, we start to think that somehow we are maintaining our salvation uh, with our works. Now, God knew this would be a problem. That's why why he had the Bible written for us. Uh, Galatians deals with this very thing in such great detail. Let let me read to you Galatians uh, 3, verse 3. This was written to a group of people who, who knew that they were wicked sinners. They received the gospel and they were saved. But then they started thinking they had to do certain things in order to maintain or keep or somehow secure their salvation. Galatians 3, 3 says... Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? God saved you, spiritually renewed you, and you were born again of the spirit. But he says, now you're going to make yourself perfect by working hard. Now, now this obviously doesn't mean that you can sin all you want. People are Always worried about that when you teach on these kind of things. And it's a legitimate thing to be concerned about. However, I just want to say, if you're sinning all you want and you're using grace as an excuse, then I'm here to tell you, you are not saved. That's the consistent, clear teaching of Scripture. So so I'll I'll just set that whole category aside. But, but, But what we should say, we should say that we are kept by the one who saved us. I am saved by God and I am kept by God. It's His grace that keeps me. And that, I think, is the point of it being a a done deal because, because some people move from faith to works. And when you move from faith to works, you begin to live in fear and then you become judgmental of other people. When we start to rely on our works, it's easy then to begin to look at everybody else very cynically. You ever known a cynic in the church? You ever known somebody, that, that person that, you know, that, that they come to church every week and then they're, they're like, what are these people really doing for God? Lazy people, you know, this, this church is just full of lazy Christians. I don't really know anything about them, but I become judgmental of them. Then one day I look at myself and I, I realize how messed up I am. And I realize that I can't even reach my own qualifications that I set uh, for being a real Christian. And then I feel condemned. And this is the fate of those who rely on good works to provide security for them. People who rely on their good works to provide security are constantly judging others or they're constantly judging themselves. It's like they're in one mode or the other. They sort of bounce back and forth between these two things If you do come across a believer who seems very judgmental of others, and I'm sure you've met some, I know I have, I'm sure you have, but if you come across a believer who seems seems very judgmental of others, there's a very good chance that they are very condemning of themselves privately. They may seem very confident and assured when they're talking to you openly, but privately they're probably condemning themselves. And you might actually uh, think of, of ministering to them along those, along those lines. Just assume it. Just think, man, they are so critical of others. They're probably dealing with guilt themselves. They, they don't know how to offer grace to anybody else because they don't understand how grace works for them. So, you might want to consider offering them more grace, which honestly is the opposite of what we want to do, right? It's the opposite of what we want to do when we, cross, when we come across someone like that. But, but maybe that's what they really need. Look at verse 31. Now we get into some of these that we love to quote. These are our coffee cup verses. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? who can be against us. Now this is God giving us the application. The application is is that you know you have been saved and God is empowering you to live this life. You have a restored relationship with God whereby you say, "Abba Father." There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a glorification that's coming that is sure in the groanings that you have you're you're being helped by the holy spirit and and god is working all things together for good to them who love him and are called according to his purpose so you have all of these truths that are all ramped up in 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 romans 8 and the conclusion is if god is for you who can possibly be against you what can anyone do to undo all that God has done for you. Isn't that beautiful? That's a powerful thing. However, this verse is one of those verses that is often totally hijacked hijacked and taken out of context. Sometimes people apply it not to the things in Romans 8, but they apply it to just whatever they're doing. You know, like, like I'm going to run a marathon next week. I'm running a marathon. Well, have you trained for it? Well, no, but if God is for me, who can be against me? You know, or, or uh, my baseball team is playing in a tournament, and and we're going to pray before every game, and we're like, God, we know that we're going to win because you are for us, and if you're for us, who can be against us? Well, you know what? Romans eight offers us many reasons to think that God is for us, but but we shouldn't apply it the the this to things like you know short term success and winning everything because you know, because we, then we take another verse out of context, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What we're doing then is we're we're sort of funneling all of the promises of Scripture through a self-serving, self-glorifying lens instead of the way that God has just given it to us. And then we have to be very careful not to do that. It's it, This is a general truth, that God is for me. H- however, I mean, h- have you had a word from the Lord that's like, your baseball team is my favorite. You know, I will prosper you and give you many home runs, thus saith the Lord. No, the Lord hasn't given that to you, so, so why would you say it? It just gets weird. See, the scripture doesn't, this scripture does not apply well to carnal or selfish thinking. It applies very well to the promises that, we, that we've received in Romans 8. If God is for me, working all things together for good, Then that means that no matter what happens, no matter what you do to attack me, no matter how you come against me, I still praise God because He is bringing good out of this for those who who love Him and are called according to His purpose. My life belongs to Him. So who can be against us? My life belongs to Him. So who can be against us? I like what Psalm 27 1 says. I love this verse. The Lord is my light and my salvation whom will I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom will I be afraid? Let, let's break that verse down. The Lord is what? The Lord is my light, my salvation, and the strength of my life. He's my light, which means that he, he gives me understanding. He shows me the way. He's my salvation. So he, he forgives me in my sins. He saves me from the greatest tragedies of life. But he's also the strength of my life because life will not be without struggle and I'm going to need his strength. Life will will not be without pain, but the Lord will be the one that strengthens me through those things. So so why should I be afraid? Why would I fear you? Why would I fear anyone? The worst you could do is kill me. you know. And it's like, if you do that, I'm in the presence of the Lord. Christians should be incredibly humble and totally fearless at the same time. It's this beautiful marriage of humility and confidence that should be given to us in Christ as we're more and more biblically minded, as we begin to fully understand what he has promised to us. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So he's carrying the same line of reasoning here, if God is for us. Well, what does it mean when you say God is for us? Well, he says, well, he he didn't spare his own son. He delivered Jesus up to death for us. And who is more valuable than Jesus? What could what could God possibly give that is that would be more valuable than Jesus. Can you imagine even, ever even conceive of, a, of anything that would be a greater cost, a higher cost? Well, he's saying if God gave you Jesus and delivered him up for us, then he will freely give us all things. But now we have to ask the question, what does he mean by all things? Because this is another one of those verses that often gets taken out of context. This is, this is where sometimes you get into some of the name it and claim it stuff, and it's really not the meaning of the scripture, what are the all things that he is freely giving us? Well, it's the same thing that he's been talking about in Romans 8, where he says we are co-heirs with Christ. We inherit with him the entire universe, the new heavens, the new earth. We talked about that in the last couple of weeks. When he comes in his glory, then we come into it as well. So, so in a sense, can I you, say this? Let me put it this way. In a sense, the name it and claim it crowd is accurate, but their timing is off. It's their timing that's wrong. It's not now. Let me read to you Romans 8, verses 18 through 20. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be, that's future tense, revealed to us. The eager expectation of the creation waits for the appearance of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope. This is what he's talking about when he talks about, when he says that God has already given us his son and he will freely give us all things. But we're waiting on this. We're waiting on this. Hebrews 11 talks about this, right? I mean, the hall of faith, it talks about how these people lived and died in faith because they wanted a greater resurrection, that there was something better. There was a promise yet to come that they were waiting on and we're waiting as well. Now, now, now. When you act like this stuff is coming now, it, it creates all kind of, all, all, all manner of confusion and, and, and sometimes faking and this awkward, embarrassing moments where you're the person in church who isn't really getting the, quote, kingdom blessings. And then they they tell you, you know, you have to keep professing it. You have to keep confessing it. So you just keep it to yourself and then act like it's happening. And then the person next to you thinks that you're one of the people for whom it works. And then they think they're the one that's messed up. And it just keeps propagating this same cycle. However, now I don't want to just tell you what Scripture doesn't tell you, but I want you to see what it does say. It does say you will inherit all things. How do I know God will really let us inherit the new universe, the new heaven and new earth? I know it because he's already given us his son. What he's going to give us later is small compared to what he already gave us. If he gave us his son, how much more will he give us all things? So it is coming. And and here's the thing. We need this hope present in our hearts right now. God has promised us these things, and as you get older and start going through hardships in life, these things start to be more important to you. The reality is that as you go through this, uh, the, the, this temporary, minuscule little moment of suffering for eternal glory, you have this promise present in your heart right now so that you can know that you're more than a conqueror regardless of the circumstances. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. Yes, who is risen, who is also at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So we have an inheritance that's coming, but now it says we have a charge. What's a charge? Well, a charge is is like like an accusation. When someone goes to court and they, they file charges against this person, This person has done some crime, and so we think you should send them to jail. A a charge is an accusation that, if true, results in condemnation. So the question here is, who will bring a charge against you? Now, I think there are two options. First, somebody else might try to bring a charge against you. might be, uh, satan you know the enemy of our soul it might be another person uh, it, it, you know but but that, that's one option somebody else could try to bring it if somebody else comes and brings a charge against you as a believer you're this and you're this and you're this and, and but yet you're in reality you're really in christ then what kind of charge can they bring against you what charge can anyone bring that will stick that's part of it but but there's another option the other option is when you bring a charge against yourself. And I think this happens a lot. And I think scripture actually talks about this, this, this self-condemnation. Now, I'm not talking about conviction. Conviction is good. You don't want to hide from that. You don't want to, you know, you, you want to be open and honest when you have failed or you've fallen into sin. But I'm talking about uh, self-condemnation. Verse uh, 1 John 3.20 says, and I love this verse, for if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows everything. There are times when I bring accusations against myself and I feel condemned. I feel assaulted. I, I, and I get reminded of God's grace. I get reminded of His love and that's, that's important. But, but here's the thing. What is Paul's response to me being accused or charged? Whether it's me bringing the charge or someone else bringing a charge, watch? What's the response? The response is that it's God that justifies. Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So are we going to tell him he's wrong? You hear what I'm saying? When we bring his condemnation, we start saying to ourselves, I'm condemned. And we start living in that self-condemnation. And God is the one who says, you're justified. Are we going to tell him he's wrong? Are we? Now, now at this point in time, I think, you know, this is where somebody says, so Dave, what you're saying is that I need to forgive myself. And I know we say that. I even said that this last Sunday. But I think what we mean is, as I've spent time thinking about this and chewing on it, I think what we mean is something a little different than the actual words that we use when you say that. Because I think what, when we say that, what we mean is that we need to remember that God has really forgiven us and we need to live that, live that out in our lives. I think that's what we mean. But when you think about the actual words, I think technically that's, that's inaccurate. Because the, the point of this verse is, is, not that you have to forgive yourself. The point of this verse is that you have no right to file charges or to dismiss charges against yourself. Only God has that right. No one but God has a right to charge or dismiss charges against you. God is the judge. So God says you are clean and you go, well, I don't know about that. Well, my thought when I hear that, you know, when I think about this, now my thought is, who do you think you are? Well, I just have to forgive myself. Well, who do you think you are to think that you have the right to declare yourself forgiven? You're either forgiven in Christ, in which case you're deluded when you think that there's a charge against you that's real, or you're not forgiven in Christ, in which case you're deluded if you think you can forgive yourself and have accomplished anything. People who honestly think I have to forgive myself, they're in a sense, they're moving into the position of God over their lives as if they can dictate forgiveness. What you need to do is go to Jesus and trust in his grace. He's the one that says, all judgment has been given to me, all judgment. It's mine, he says. And then he takes himself to the cross. He dies for our sins and we believe in him and we're washed and we're made clean. So I uh, I cannot dictate my guilt or my innocence. That's God's call. Whoever condemns me, whether it's you or me, literally has no right to make that call. I don't have the right to say that. God is the one who has the final word. And that encourages my heart because now I can read 1 John 3.20 and say, you know, my heart is really condemning me. But you know what? God is greater than my heart. He knew what kind of knucklehead I was before He ever forgave me. And He still saved me, so I'm just wrong. I'm wrong. Look at verse 34. It is Christ who died. Yes, who is risen, who is also at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. You think you have to forgive yourself? Here's Jesus. He died. He rose again. He's at the right hand of God interceding for you. And you think you have to forgive yourself? No, you have to let go of your guilt. You have to walk in His forgiveness. You have to receive the forgiveness that He's offering you. But it's not about what you can do for yourself. You have to recognize the forgiveness that you've been given. You can can condemn yourself all day long, but it just doesn't work. My self-condemnation doesn't change the truth. All my self-condemnation does is imprison me in a prison of my own making. All it does is paralyze me from fulfilling the, the, the calling that God has placed in my life. It does not make it true. If God says to me that if I confess my sin to him and he declares to me, you are clean, he says to me, you are justified, then I have no right to contradict him and say, no, I'm not. I think that's a big part of what he's saying here. And it comforts our hearts because facts can help your feelings sometimes. And this is one of those times because our our feelings will lie to us. All the time. That's why Romans 8 starts off with there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? Yes. Then there's no condemnation. But I I think it doesn't matter. You can think anything you want. But you're wrong. If you're in Christ, receive it. Believe it. Walk in it. Stop walking in false condemnation. Because there is no condemnation. Look at verse 35. Powerful passage here. "Who Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, these words, uh, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, they all have specific meanings. Tribulation is a word just used for general hardship. Anything difficult you go through is tribulation. It's really a big umbrella word for anything difficult you walk through in life. Distress is a very interesting word. The, 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 The parts of the word, when you put it together, it literally means a narrow place. A narrow place like you're being squeezed, like you're being pressed upon, like you're like you feel like life is 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 caving in on you. It's the this is the idea of distress. Sometimes nowadays we we just call it stress. That's the common word we use. So it's pressure on your life. Persecution is being harmed for Christ because you're following Christ. Some sort of harm uh, comes to you. Famine and nakedness have to do with poverty so it has to do with a lack of basic life necessities peril is the idea of danger of, of danger of what might happen what could happen we, we tend to worry about those things a lot don't we uh, and then finally there's the sword and the sword is talking about death so whether it's general hardship or stress that I'm under or persecution that I'm enduring or basic financial issues like famine or nakedness or, or peril, the, the things that I'm worried might come, the kind of danger that, that, that of what could happen or what might happen, or even if it's death, even being murdered for Christ, he says, yet in all these things I am more than a conqueror. I'm more than a conqueror. Get this. I'm more than a conqueror even if I experience all of this. That's the key to Romans 8. It's even though I do go through these things, I'm still more than a conqueror. It's not the opposite. There's false teaching that says that you won't go through this. It won't happen if you have enough faith. And all that, all that does is actually restore the fear that you have of all those things because you're like, it won't happen, it won't happen, it won't happen, it won't happen. And all you're doing, you're constantly dwelling on what you want what you want not to happen. But, but what if it does happen? Are you still a conqueror in Christ? Are you still overcoming? You know, you know some people doubt God's love When they're going through hard times. Oh, I've been experiencing this hard time. I've been going through it and going through it and going through it. And it just won't go away. I just can't stand it anymore. And it's starting to feel like like God just doesn't love me. Well, I want to say this about that. The Bible never gave you that expectation that, that this wouldn't happen. You gave yourself that expectation. The scripture, hear this, the scripture Is telling you how to conquer through it. Not how to avoid it. Through it. This is the continual message of Scripture. I'm more than a conqueror through my pains, in my pains. Because through forgiveness or deliverance into a better future, I am going to make it out on the other side. I'm going to be okay. And that is a powerful truth. Now, what do I have to do? To be this conqueror, this is a beautiful thing. All you have to do to be this conqueror is wait. Wait. That's it. That's all you have to do. Whether it's the tribulation, the stress, the persecution, famine, nakedness, perilous sword, you just wait. You wait on the Lord. But I've been waiting. Sometimes we're like children. How many of you have ever taken a long car ride with small children in the car? You ever done that? Isn't that a fun day? Right? And there, there's, when you do that, there is one question that will inevitably, inevitably be asked and probably asked very often. What is that question? Are we there yet? Every everybody here knows that. Are we there yet? We get impatient. It's like there's this, I heard a story about a little 4-year-old girl who was celebrating Christmas with her family and her uncle was over there with them and and uh, she had opened a present, and she was excited to play with it and so she gave it to her uncle and said, "Can you uh open this and, and assemble it for me so I can play with it?" And so she handed it to him and and uh, and if you know what toys are like nowadays, it had like a thousand zip ties on it. And so he's cutting, you know, Uh, zip ties to get the thing out of the package and he's cutting the zip ties and trying just trying to get the toy out to to assemble it and she's like and she comes to him and she says is it ready and her her uncle was like no it's not ready it's not even out of the package yet you just have to wait a minute just be patient little girl's like okay and so she as soon as she said okay she then proceeded to walk around the living room just one lap just, she walks around the room one time, and she comes back around her uncle and says, is it ready yet? And he said, he said, no, sorry, no. And she's kind of, you can just see all the life. you know, her shoulders just drooped, and she said, being patient is hard, and she walks away. Well, that's me. That's me, and and sometimes, except, except, my trip around the living room is, it's been a month already. Shouldn't, shouldn't this be better now? It's been a year already. It's been 10 years already. It's been 20 years already. It's been a lifetime already. Well, maybe you have to wait until we receive, until we receive our inheritance. But you wait. You wait. Maybe you're going to go through a struggle that it won't get better until everything is completely resolved in the resurrection. Maybe you won't see the silver lining in the cloud until you see it in hindsight from glory. This is exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans 8. He's talking about being more than a conqueror in those things, through those things, because we know we have a hope that goes past those things. And all you have to do is wait. You know, this really brings me to a place where I want to talk about some of the some of the teachings that are out there in today's world that that I I think are not lined up with Scripture. Um, and here's the question that comes to my mind when I hear some some teachers today: is why why am I constantly prepared for pain in the New Testament if glory in this life was the expectation? If earthly prosperity was the expectation for Christians, why are we so consistently prepared for suffering in Scripture? You know, Israel nationally had had promises of prosperity, and this is where many of the prosperity preachers get off. Here's what they do: they quote promises from to Israel from the Old Testament about how they would how they would have national prosperity and if if they would have national obedience and. They quote it out of context, and they act as, as if that's God's promise for you. Then they switch obedience, for giving and ask you to give them money. So let me give you an example. I'm, I'm not going to mention this man's name. I don't like to do that sort of thing. But this is uh, uh, from the website of a, an internationally known preacher of the prosperity gospel. And there's an article uh, from the website called God's Promises of Prosperity for You. And the, the article takes you through a few steps. I'm going to walk through these steps that they give, see if you can figure, figure out where it gets off. And I think when you see the implications of it, you'll understand why it's worth talking about. First, it says God's prosperity; uh, God has prosperity for you. And then it talks about Old Testament people who are wealthy. It says Adam was wealthy, according to this article, because Adam lived in the Garden of Eden. And the article says that the same text talks about how there were hills nearby where there was gold. So Adam was obviously uh, must have been very wealthy, they says. And so it talks about Isaac and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph. And while he was in poverty, he eventually got raised up. And it talks about all these people. Uh, and every single person in the article is from the Old Testament, interestingly enough, because you really can't find one wealthy godly person in the New Testament as far as the apostles go or any leader in the church. It's very difficult to find. Lydia, maybe she was a seller of purple, seemed to have some financial prosperity, but... So he's the only one I can think of who had any sort of that, any sort of that thing going on. And so it's all Old Testament individuals. And they, they ignore the many people in the Old Testament who weren't wealthy. Uh, there were many prophets who were destitute. Uh, and, and they just target you know, those that were, that were wealthy. That's, that's step one. Step one creates an expectation of godly people being wealthy. Step two in the article is this. God, God's will for you is to be financially prosperous and now they, they misuse and twist Scripture out of context where, where, the, uh, where the promises were actually to Israel. So, you know, they say, God will bring you into the land flowing with milk and honey and all this stuff. Now, that's a promise for Israel. Now, there is an application for us. But what is, what is the application for us? What is the, the promised land for us? Yeah, it's not here. It's not here. It's heaven. And so, and so there's an application, but when they apply that to, to here, then that's a misuse of the Scripture. And step three, and I quote from the article, here is the key. All God's prosperous people recorded in the Bible were obedient in giving. All were givers. Where do you think this is going to go next? After going on and on about, the obe- about how they were obedient in giving, and it doesn't talk about the righteous life, which actually was a requirement for Israel's national prosperity or anything else like that. It just talks about giving. And step four, it says September 1st is our day of prayer for debt cancellation. It's coming, guys. September second, September 1st. Mark your calendars. There's a special moment where your debts can be canceled as we pray for it. All you have to do is scroll down about three inches on your screen and find that donate button and click on that button. And the entire article has been To simply designed to manipulate you into desiring wealth in order to get uh, you to think that godliness is a means of gain and then thinking that by giving them money, you will get more money. And that's totally unscriptural, ungodly, and my heart breaks for people who fall for it. Jesus did not say in this world you will have prosperity. He said in this world you will have tribulation. Jesus was preparing the church for hardship, not wealth. And that's just the truth. The New Testament indicates that there are some rich believers, but there are also poor believers. And it tells us that there are dangers in both areas. But it says that neither one is better, neither one is more godly, neither one is more faith-filled than the other. I want to read to you directly from the Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. Anyone who teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words to the word of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly doctrine, so he's about talking about false teachers, is conceited and knows nothing. He has a morbid disposition for controversy and verbal disputes from which come envy, strife, blasphemies, evil speculations, constant disputes by men of corrupt minds, being destitute of the truth, and, listen, and supposing that financial gain is godliness." That's the false teaching. Withdraw yourself from such men, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Not financial gain, but it's great gain, real gain, just being godly and being content. For we brought nothing into this world. He's really making it very clear here that our gain is not about the wealth of this world. We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we shall be content with these things. What do you mean, Paul? Where's, where's the promise of prosperity? Just food and clothing and, and you're content? What, what about the new car? What about the new jet for your ministry? If we have food and clothing, we shall be content with these things. But those, he says in verse 6, Those who desire to be rich. The desire to be rich is the problem, not being rich. It's not a condemnation for wealth. It's a condemnation for your lust for wealth. That's what's ungodly. If the desire to be rich is in your heart, that's an ungodly desire. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in ruin and destruction. Listen, for any ministry to feed the desire to be rich in people, they are pushing people towards things that will drown them in ruin and destruction, and it leads them into foolish and harmful lust. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all evil. While coveting after money, some have strayed from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, who do you think this might apply to today? Listen, if a ministry is is all about giving, if, if they start talking to me about seeds of faith and how I have to donate in order to get the miracle that I need, I'm done with that. I, I remember one time I, I invited a man to, to preach at a church where I was pastoring and, and um, everything I saw was, was good and and then he got there, and everything was fine. I had a good relationship with him. And then he said, "Hey, uh, you know, can can I receive my offering?" And I normally don't do that, but I said, "Oh, okay, we'll let you do that." And he got up there and he started talking about about how different people, if they gave hundred dollars, uh, that they saw people get saved that they loved. And he said, "When one lady, she had three people she wanted to get saved, and she gave three hundred dollars, and all three of them got saved." And started started making this this veiled uh promise that if you give a hundred dollars the person you're praying for will get saved and i sat there and my heart broke and i was sick to my stomach i had i had to deal with the fallout of that and correcting that later on because that's that is not godly that is that's, you know, listen, if if, they, if, it's, if it goes that direction, miracles from God are, there's not a cash on the barrel exchange where you can say, okay, God, if I give this, then you've got to do this miracle for me. Uh, you know, that's not the way it is. This. Listen, there are wonderful ministries all over this world that are worth supporting, and it is good to give. Giving is good. The Bible teaches a lot about giving. The Bible teaches a lot about God's blessings when we remain faithful. Giving is good, but not giving to get. That's bad. Yes, there's scripture that says, says there will be a return. But if, you're, if, you're, if your motivation is the return, now you're giving to get. You're not given because you have received. The reason I can give in the first place is because God has given it. That's the very reason. Scripture does not say give so that you can get wealthy. But it does say work hard so you'll have extra money so you can give. Well, if I... If I have to work hard to give extra money, uh, then that means that this giving is not getting any money back for me, is it? No, because biblically, giving is literally giving, meaning that I have less of that thing, but then I have more trust in God. As Christians, our, our hope is not so petty as to be smothered by temporary suffering. Our hope goes far beyond that. And, and the expectation of financial wealth in this life is, is really a petty expectation that drowns men in wastefulness and foolish lust. We are, listen, we are more than conquerors, even in poverty, even in famine or nakedness or peril or, or, or at, uh, at the edge of the sword or in persecutions or tribulations or in any of those things He says, in fact, he says that we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But none of this affects our relationship with Jesus. And that's how it ends in verses 38 and 39. Romans 8 ends with these powerful words. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities nor powers, neither things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is it that nothing that I'm going, to, that I'm going through can do? It cannot separate me from God's love that's in Christ. If I'm in Christ, I am secure And nothing that happens, not cancer, not poverty, not death, not persecution, not hardship, not the slow, difficult anguish of long-lasting trials, none of these things separates me from God's love. None of these things. God consistently prepares us for suffering. So I, I take a cue from this. In this world, you will have tribulations. I will too. So prepare your heart for it. Don't wait for it to come and then hope that you'll have the strength. Prepare your heart for it now. Place your hope in the resurrection. Place your hope in heaven. Place your hope in the transformation of your body. Place your hope in the strength that God gives you. Look to the Holy Spirit who helps you in your groanings and, and you will groan. Praise, uh, excuse me. Place your hope in him who, who works all things together uh, for good to those who love him and are called according to, called according to his purpose. We are more than conquerors through anything, no matter what happens. You know, you, you should go home and reread Romans 8. And then when you're finished, reread it again. And it's, it's a chapter that should be on a regular reading schedule for yourself. You should read it all the time. At least once a week, I would say, read it, pull it out and read it and think about what he's saying to us about what God offers us to, to us in Christ Jesus and what that means for us and why we can have hope because we know that we have a hope that goes beyond the sufferings of this world and that these light and momentary sufferings are nothing to be, care, to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us. I honestly want to have this mentality and to live in this mentality that I am more than a conqueror in the suffering that I may be going through, in the hardships, in the stress, in the difficulties, and the pains, because nothing separates me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you're, you're causing everything to work together Uh, for for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord, I pray that you just help us to be ready for for suffering, that we'd be prepared for pain. We wouldn't be taken uh, off guard or surprised by difficult circumstances and hardships. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to that that our hearts would be secure in you and in your love. Lord, help us to set our, our sights on contentment on earth and on glory in heaven. Help us to be right-minded about these things. Help us, Lord, to to go through this this world with our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, uh, uh, he endured the cross and suffered its shame. Lord, we have a joy that's set before us, right in front of us, beyond where we are right now. So help us to remember that. Help us to live with joy and confidence in the the midst of whatever may be happening in our lives. And we thank you and pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Praise God, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is such good news, and I hope that you've been encouraged tonight. I want to invite you to join us Sunday morning for our service. We're continuing our series called Healing Choices And we're going to be talking about the transformation choice. So join us here in person at 1030 in the morning if you can on Sunday morning. If you can't join us in person, be sure to join us online. In the meantime, don't forget, let Jesus use you. This world needs the message that you carry. This world needs you. This world needs the light of the gospel that God wants to shine through your life. So make yourself available. Let him use you. God bless you. Have a great evening.